Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do come before you. Poor, wretched sinners in need of your grace, in need of redemption, in need of the gift of the Savior, Jesus. We pray that you would give us eyes to see him, ears to hear, and Lord, that we would respond with praise and glory unto our God and King, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Well, this morning we begin our Advent season. Pastor Jake and myself will be bringing some messages, um, and as you can see, as I can see in front of me, um, we've talked about this being um, Christmas from the beginning, the theme for our Advent this year. In looking at the whole of Scripture from the beginning to the end, all of it points towards Jesus. And so we want to take some passages in the Old Testament leading right up into the New Testament that speak about Christ's first coming. These messages are meant to paint us a picture of the first coming, but also to make us think and reminisce, long for His second coming when He will come again. We sang a moment ago, Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus. What a great song that gives us a definition of what Advent really means. Advent is a looking forward to, an expectation, a waiting, a longing, a desire for the Messiah. That's how it was in the Old Testament. In fact, all the way up until Christ was born in the manger. We too long, we too desire, but not for Christ's first coming. We've already done that. He's come. And so we look back at that coming and we see the grace that is given to us through that first coming, but we also look forward to Him coming again. Well, Christmas is coming. We have just 28 days from today until Christmas For many of us, the time's going to go by in the blink of an eye. For some, though, like the little ones that just left here earlier, the time is going to just go by so slow, like molasses in wintertime. The agony of waiting for Christmas morning when they can open up presents. It's like that old Heinz commercial that Carly Simon sang, anticipation, anticipation, it's making me late, it's making me wait as the ketchup does not come out of the bottle. Our passage this morning is from Genesis chapter 3, and it's a time when they weren't even looking forward to anything. We read in our affirmation of faith, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth that it was done through the Word, Jesus Christ, that all things came into being through Him. So there really wasn't any anticipation, any longing, any waiting. Adam and Eve are in the garden, and all is good. In fact, God says in Genesis that all was very good on the sixth day. There was nothing to be looking forward to. They had it all. 
That's the good news. What we read today is the bad news and then the good news yet again. Genesis is a book of beginnings where everything starts. The first word in the Hebrew Old Testament is Bereshit. It means in the beginning. And that's where we start today. All created good, but all goes south quickly. One can only imagine how long it took for the serpent to approach Eve. Was it on the eighth day? Was it a week later? All we know is that it did take place. God had put Adam in the garden, in paradise. He told him that he could eat of any tree of the garden, that there was only one prohibition. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He even had access to the tree of life that would give him so much more. Eternal life, eternal fellowship with God. Yet one wonders. He never had the opportunity to eat of it. But as God created Adam in his own image, he knew that it was not good for the man to be alone. And so quickly, in chapter 2, he creates Eve out of the side of Adam. And those two became one flesh. And there they were in the garden, working together. One work was actually good. One work was not actually labor. They probably enjoyed it. It brought great joy, exceeding joy for them to work in that garden. They were to take that garden and take it throughout the world. This was God's king and queen of creation. But here we have in verses 14 and 15 the first giving of the gospel. And this is for my friend Dick Brown. It's a proto evangelum. He loves that word. The first giving of the gospel. Spurgeon says this it's the first gospel sermon that was ever given on earth, and it's memorable. God Himself is the preacher, and the whole human race, that being Adam and Eve, and the prince of darkness are His audience. So it is worthy for us to give us its heartiest attention. That from Spurgeon. Well, that's where we're going to start this first Advent message, with the promise that is given to the woman, and the curse that is given to the serpent. Isn't it interesting that our salvation would come out of a curse? Have you ever thought about that? That's what he does after Adam is asked about what happened. He said, well, the woman you gave me, the blame game starts. He turns to Eve and says, what is this you have done? And he said, the the serpent beguiled me, deceived me. No judgment is passed on Adam nor Eve, but to the serpent. The Lord God says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. 
On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. He's cursed. Now this is a real serpent, a physical serpent, but it's also a serpent that is possessed by evil itself, by Satan, by the devil, by the deceiver. He is the one that looks to destroy God's creation from its very conception. What is he trying to do? He wants to turn all of what is good upside down. He wants the whole of creation to be under his dominion, his power, his rule, his reign. And so he sets out through the serpent to deceive Eve. We're going to look at several things today, five things today. We're going to look at this temptation or seduction of the serpent. We're going to look at the enmity that is placed between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent, the coming of the offspring, the bruising, and then the ongoing battle between the offspring. Well, let's go ahead and dive into this, the, beginning with the temptation. We've been talking about the seduction and what has taken place and how the serpent has been looking to overthrow God's rule and reign, and he is successful in doing so. He approaches the woman, Eve, as a friend. Eve is naive, to say the least. You see, all creation is good. She hasn't any need to expect the unexpected, to expect someone deceive her. But here's the serpent. And it's quite interesting that Adam and Eve are made to have dominion over the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and yes, the beasts of the field. And yet this one, this serpent, comes to the woman, not the head of the household, to the woman. And in so doing, puts forth deception. There is a goal in mind. Separate them from the God of creation. And we learn two things from this. One, you should know this, and it's a reminder you hear it all the time. Many of us look back and say, well, why didn't they do this? Why didn't they do that? We would have fallen to the same temptation. But we should also learn from this temptation. As temptations come to us, it comes in the same fashion. It's the same three things all over again. One, Satan begins by questioning the Word of God and implying that God is unreasonable. God's unreasonable. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree? God's unreasonable. The second thing that he does is he adds to God's Word. He says here, not eat from any tree. No, it was a specific tree, not just any tree, not as if there was many trees not to eat from. And then Satan does a third thing. He completely denies the Word of God. You will not surely die. Those are the things that we hear all the time through temptation. 
Adam should have heard this. He should have, as the head of the household, recognized the evil. He should have known the word of God. He should have been the one to raise his heel and bruise the head of the serpent. But as we know, all it takes is just a little. A few questions, a little adding here, a little taking away there. And before you know it, we too are denying the Word of God. We open our minds just a little. We doubt just a little. We begin to second guess just a little. Then self-centeredness takes its course. We begin to think, I deserve just a little bit more, just a little pleasure. And then desire sets in. And once that has happened, sin is soon to follow. Eve saw that the tree was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. Isn't sin that way? Sin like the serpent is a friend. Sin, come on over. Let's have a good time. But Satan and sin are no friend. They are murderers hiding in the darkness, in the shadows, waiting to devour. Waiting for us to give in. He wasn't the friend of Eve nor of Adam. He looked to destroy humanity, those created in the image of God. Form his own confederation, his own kingdom, his own people that would be enslaved to him forever. Can you imagine the thought? Satan taking on the throne of the earth. Adam and Eve and all their posterity becoming his followers, his legion, his minions. That was the plan. But at this point, a miracle takes place. God had every right to come down, sweep away Adam, Eve, the serpent, all in his wrath and judgment. He could have done that. But he doesn't. The seduction had taken place, the deception had taken place, sin had entered into the world. But God, rich in mercy, rich in grace, comes with a word. First a curse to the serpent. And within that curse, the audience of Adam and Eve hear the promise. The first giving of the gospel. The first message of advent of one who was to come. An offspring. An offspring was to come. God says, you know what? I'm going to take it from here. It's always been my plan. But I will take the initiative here. I will step in and here's what I'm going to do. Here's my first act of grace, my first act of mercy. I'm going to put enmity between you, serpent, and me. I'm going to put enmity between your offspring, serpent, and the offspring of the woman. Satan had the idea of his own kingdom, this whole earth being his, his realm, his rule, his reign. 
God says, not so fast. I have a kingdom, and my kingdom's coming, and it's starting with Adam and with Eve. I'm going to put enmity between the two of you. It was a declaration of war. The serpent, Satan, had already done that. You remember Franklin Delano Roosevelt? On the 8th of December 1941, he made this statement. He said, Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air force of the empire of Japan. Here God says, on this day, it'll live in infamy. Every one of my chosen are going to remember this. The day my creation was suddenly and deliberately attacked by Satan and his forces for his kingdom of evil and darkness. But I will not let it stand. I will put enmity between your offspring and the woman's offspring. I will make war between the two. And so comes the enmity. The war between the two. It's a war that's been raging since Genesis 3.15. This war continues through the offspring. Satan, though, has already received the death sentence. His head will be bruised. A fatal blow will come. But he's not going to give up. He looks to enslave the offspring of God's people. But specifically, he looks to destroy the offspring that is to come. The offspring of the woman. We see this waging of war happen immediately between Cain and Abel. Cain being one of the offspring of the serpent. Abel being one of the offspring of the woman. You see this repeated with Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau. Paul says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. But God continually provides and protects again and again to bring about the offspring, the Christ, the Messiah that will bruise the serpent's head. We saw this in Ruth. The genealogy that is at the end. We're in this period of darkness, this period of judges, where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There it is. Boaz and Ruth have Obed. Obed has Jesse. Jesse has David, the king. A picture of the offspring that is to come. Well, the conflict, as I said, has been since the beginning. It waged on. It did with Moses. You know, Jacob and his sons are starving from a famine that's in the land in Israel. He sends his sons down to Egypt where Joseph is going to provide for them. And they receive food, but ultimately they all move down to Egypt where they're cared for. But the offspring of the serpent, Pharaoh, changes. 
This new offspring wants to do away with the people of Israel. Powered by darkness, by evil, by Satan himself, the serpent, and his offspring, what he has in mind is destroying all the male children in Israel. Tells the midwives, when they come out, if it's a boy, kill it. But the midwives won't do it. So Pharaoh, the offspring of the serpent, says, well, throw all the male children into the Nile. Let them be crocodile food. So God steps in through Moses the deliverer, brings the ten plagues, and out they go. And they come to the Red Sea. The Red Sea parts. The offspring of the woman go across on dry land. The offspring of the serpent, Pharaoh and his warriors, are drowned by the Red Sea. It's a picture of the offspring, the story of the offspring. Well, that's just one example. You can look at Esther. You know the story of Esther? She becomes the queen to Artaxerxes. But through that, there is an offspring of the serpent, Haman. He tricks the king into making a decree to destroy all of Israel in one day. Mordecai, Esther's uncle, speaks with her. Says, you need to intervene. And she does. And so another decree is placed where Israel can defend itself. And on that day, all the offspring of the serpent are defeated. Many more times you see examples of the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman doing great battle. It's David versus Goliath. As you read that passage in 1 Samuel 17 and Goliath is out there in all his glory. He's got the chain mail. In Hebrew, the mail actually means scales. His breastplate, his armor are like scales of a serpent. And he mocks the people of Israel. He mocks the offspring of the woman. And yet one stands up. David. Ruddy. Tries on the armor. It doesn't fit. Throws it off. Goes out there with a sling and a stone. Hits Goliath in the forehead. Then uses his own sword to take off the head. A picture of the offspring of the woman bruising the head of the serpent. Well, this picture continues throughout the Old Testament with example after example after example. It takes a new page when we turn to the offspring of the woman in Matthew with the coming of Jesus, the birth of of the Christ. Herod, another offspring of the serpent, is the king. He's troubled. Who is this one that is born king of the Jews? So he sends the wise men to do his task. Find him. Not find him because he wants to go and worship the coming of the Messiah. Not because he wants to repent of sin. Not because he wants salvation. He wants to rule and reign. 
And so in a dream, Joseph is told to take the child and go to Egypt. But Herod, in a fit of rage, in Judah, orders that all the children to and under be slaughtered. This is the battle that we're in. This is the battle that rages between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. As Christ began His ministry, the onslaught continued. They couldn't kill Him as a child. Now Satan will try to kill Him as a young man. You see the temptation again. Get Jesus off. As He begins His ministry, the serpent meets Him in the wilderness. Tempts Him as Eve was tempted. Christ stays steadfast. Then at Gethsemane, the temptation of the cross. Christ doesn't let the the cup pass. Thy will be done. Judas' betrayal, the scribes, the Pharisees, Caiaphas, Anaphas, all of Rome looking to trump up charges to put Christ to death. Serpent thinking that if he kills the Christ, all will be one. But the, sin, the serpent didn't know the deep mystery of Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. A death for a death. John Owen wrote a book called The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. In that, you read about the bruising of the heel of the offspring of the woman and the bruising of the head of the serpent. Christ would take the bruising. Have you ever seen a snake at a distance, maybe crossing your path? What is your first thought when you see it? I know what mine is. You want to cut its head off. You want to stomp on it. You want to take it out. You want to get rid of that serpent. And what does a serpent do? Knowing that you're trying to hit it with a rock or something like that. It looks to strike you. And where's it going to strike? The lower part of your body. Your heel. Put that venom, put that poison in until you die well in the death of the death the death of death and the death of Christ we see Christ taking that strike that venom that venom represents all our sin you see that in numbers chapter 21 remember when the children of Israel are complaining and grumbling no food no water want to go back to Egypt God you're not providing for us God gives them a little taste of their sin he sends out serpents the serpents begin to strike the people of Israel and people start dying then he tells Moses here's what I want you to do I want you to take a staff and I want you to take a bronze serpent and put it on the head of the staff 
and lift it up. And anyone who looks at the serpent will live. This symbolically shows what sin does and what frees you from sin. The serpent represents the sin. And when looking to that pole that is lifted up is by faith looking to God to remove the sin that the serpent brings. That's what Oban talks about. What Christ does on the cross is He takes the venom. He takes our sin. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And through His death, Satan is put to death. Oh, not completely, not just yet. That will happen. This is all part of God's plan. You know, Peter talked about it in his sermon at Pentecost. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It's part of God's plan. Isaiah talked about it in Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Same word used for bruise. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. Christ's death on the cross is temporary till the third day when he raises, he's raised again from the dead. Paul puts it this way, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Redemption has been won. Christ, through being bruised on the heel, dying on the cross, crushes the head of the serpent forever. But the battle's not over. The battle remains. What do you want for Christmas? Any thoughts? Years ago, I used to buy my wife her Christmas gifts. And then she began to tell me what she was getting for Christmas. <laughs> They're the perfect gift. God does the same, in a way. He knows what we need. He gives us the gifts that we need. Particularly knowing that there's a battle that still rages on. If you've placed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've received the greatest of all gifts. You've received His Son. You've received salvation, forgiveness of sins, and eternal life. But there's more, like Steve's children said last week. He's given you faith. He's given you love. He's given you hope. But He's also given you the gift of enmity. Hatred for the serpent. Satan. The dragon of old. Hatred for sin. He has given you the gift of enmity. He's also given you the gift of adoption. You are now sons and daughters. Prince and princesses. But there's more. You're the gift 
of an ambassador, a sent one. You're to be witnesses. And in so being witnesses, you're warriors when you take the gospel to others. You see, every time that you profess Christ, every time that you share the gospel, that's why here at Trinity we're about making disciples. When you're doing that, you are shaking the very gates of hell. We're at war. There are elect, chosen out there waiting to hear the gospel. We are part of God's means in doing so. We are the ones that are take, to take the gospel. We are the ones to do battle here on earth. To retake dominion. To be fruitful and multiply as Christ's church. That's what you're called to do. In the Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, there's a scene that takes place. Edmund is not in the picture. Peter, Susan, and Lucy are. They're at the beaver's household. Mr. Beaver goes, hey, you've got to see something. Come outside with me. Goes outside and there's a sled. And there's a reindeer. And they look around and saying, well, this isn't the witch's sleigh and her reindeer. This reindeer is much bigger. And then they turn and they see a recognizable figure, Father Christmas. And he comes bearing gifts. He comes bearing gifts. He says, Peter, son of Adam. Peter says, yes, sir. Here are your presents. And they are not tools, or they are tools, they are not toys. The time to use them is perhaps near at hand. Bear them well. With these words, he handed to Peter a shield and a sword. The shield was the color of silver, and across it was the red lion, as bright as a ripe strawberry. At the moment when you pick it, the hilt of the sword was gold, and it had a sheath and a belt everything that was needed. To Susan, he gave a bow and a quiver full of arrows. He told her, you must use the bow only at great need. It rarely misses. And here's a horn that you should blow. When you blow it, in time of need, help will come. And to Lucy, she is given a cordial. It looks as a diamond and a dagger. In this bottle there is a juice that is made from the fire flower that grows on the mountain. If someone is hurt, it will restore them and bring healing. You've been given weapons as well. But our warfare is not against flesh and blood. It is against rulers and principalities Demons, the offspring of the serpent, the offspring of Satan. Paul goes to great lengths to talk about this in Ephesians chapter 6. Gird yourself with the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoe of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, and prayer. There are no spectators in the kingdom of God.
there are priests, believer priests. There are ambassadors. There are those who take the proclamation of the gospel and make disciples. We are not meant to sit on the sidelines. We are meant to go forth and take the gospel. Preaching and teaching all that Christ has taught us. All authority has been given to the offspring of the woman. Paul says in Galatians, it doesn't say to offsprings, it says to offspring, meaning Christ. He is the one whom we serve. He is the one whom we're to go to battle with and for. Paul ends his letter to the Romans by saying, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The battle is not over. It's not. It's as if it has just begun. What do you want for Christmas? I want to see more and more of God's chosen come to faith in Christ and be part of His kingdom his church here on earth. I pray that you do the same. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this message of Advent that comes to us from Genesis. Let us believe it. Let us receive it. Let us live it out. Let us not be fearful knowing that you are omnipotent. Let us have courage let us have boldness to proclaim your gospel to a lost world in need of a Savior, in need of forgiveness, in need of redemption. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.